The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Hello, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and I'm uh, joined today by a very special uh, guest host, John Blank, who's the chief market strategist for Zacks Investment Management, um, calling, coming in from, uh, calling in from Los Angeles, I should say. Uh, good morning to you, John. Good morning, Mark. Uh, thanks for being with us. I know it's a little bit early for you. It's uh, 11 o'clock a.m. here in Chicago. And uh, I just wanted to say again, zero degrees. There are no degrees outside here in Chicago. So you're much happier where you are in nice, balmy Southern California. So, <laughs> this time of year, it does have its benefits. No that's right. That's right. So we do have a lot to get to uh, in, in talking um, about what's going on in, in the markets. Uh, both, I don't know, it's usually around holiday season. There isn't that much to talk about, but we do have another a new incoming administration. Uh, let's first start with, we're in the final month of President Obama's eight-year tenure as uh, President of the United States. From a market perspective, do you have a final verdict on how we can maybe uh, salt away these last eight years? Well, I think you have to give the President... Um an A or a B rating, and in terms of his management of an economy, given that he inherited um, a 2008 economy that had 9.5% employment, uh, unemployment rate, and now he's leaving with 4.5% unemployment, um, and, you know, multi-decade lows in unemployment claims, and, and basically a stock market that is, you know, record highs at this point in time. So a lot of people made a lot of money. Uh, the The attitude of the country, the confidence of the country is certainly higher. Um, really, there's, there's also evidence that he's begun the process of raising the wage rate. We're at 2.5% annual growth in wages, which is starting to turn the corner on that process, which is also hasn't happened in eight years. So, in general, um, you know, it's a record that he will be seen in history for producing, and he will, he will be seen favorably. Right. Not as much of a risk taker as I think our un- incoming president is going to be. Um, Donald Trump conferred with top tech executives yesterday, and even Trump's opponents during the election season were positive. Pre- for, for the most part, Jeff Bezos, for instance, uh, liked Trump's focus on innovation and U.S. jobs uh, when he spoke after the after the meeting uh, yesterday. Um, so we're talking about a president of innovation. Were are there inherent risks that you see that just pop to mind right away? Well, you know, the one thing I was thinking about of any administration, and the Obama administration is no different than the the Trump administration, in that you inherit um, conditions and you also are victim of events. Think of the Bush administration in 2001. I think they spent the entire time fighting terrorism and the entire time working in Afghanistan and, and running wars and 
none of that was a, of the plan for the Bush administration because they, they didn't have the 9-11 attacks to, to change their strategy. So the one thing you have to think about in any administration, and, and Trump has this in spades, is for certain in the first four years of his time in office, if that's the only four years he gets, you will face a recession. Um, and he will also face political event risk, which is going to mean, you know, a Brexit. Uh, he will might face conflict with Russia. He can he can see uh, some type of military action, even if he doesn't cause it, even if he doesn't create it, which is some people's worry. He can be suddenly have his entire administration's focus be be pouring at it. So, the lesson of history is that. It's not often what you plan to do, but what is, happens to you and how you react to it. And that's the one thing you have to think about here is, what are the events that this president will have to deal with that he is not planning on? Right. I mean, obviously, it's one of the most important jobs in the entire world, uh, all the time. So no matter who you are, um, that's right. Uh, what was I going to say about that, though? Oh, um, you, I think right, you were talking about things do happen. Uh, recessions tend to happen. And I think you were the one who had the statistic in, in one of your write-ups, one of your market outlooks or, or some, something like that, uh, where in the second year of a president's term, uh, of a first term for a two-term president, uh, is the most likely time to see a recession. Is, is that, that is correct. Okay. That is correct, Mark. So we're looking at probably, not probably, but there's a possibility that uh, you know a year and a half out, we might see some uh, some resistance in the market from where we are right now, which is real exuberance. Right. And this is exactly the exuberance, exactly the way we get into a recession. Because to get into a recession is always the case that you must proceed a recession with excesses. And you have a recession in output because you basically consumed and piled up too much debt or consumption and you know, whatever has to pile up greater than your need. And we're seeing that very thing play out right now. So there, what will happen is there will be this bullishness that will create too much real estate. There will be this bullishness that will push stocks over the edge. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the project will collapse. These, these, these optimistic projections will not be met. And that's when the recession hits. So this is exactly the scenario we're seeing, which is markets don't go down. Everybody thinks he's going to be perfect. And... What really happens is the excesses are being built into the system right now. Well, obviously, we're seeing the stock markets bid way, way up uh, since the election. And it's, um, I, I think, for a lot of positive and, and, and ways that we see that, that there will be impro improvements on Wall Street, lesser regulation, tax cuts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But do you, so do you think we've pushed beyond where we need to be at this point, or is it pretty much par for the course? Well... You know, the thing about this presidency is he's being elected uh, by a group of states and a group of voters who kind of went sideways. And, you know, the growth in the U.S. economy came from the infotech sector the last 20 years. And not a lot of that has been generated in California and down in the North Carolina area and places like D.C. and Boston. So this is largely skipped the Iowas and the Pennsylvanias and the Wisconsins of, and Michigans of the world. So it's not like they have fallen apart, but in relative terms, for 20 years, these states have really not generated much enthusiasm for the people who live in them. And this, this sense of relative stagnation, not stagnation, but relative stagnation, stagnation with respect 
to the other parts of the country, is his challenge and his opportunity. He knows that. He, he ran on that. He's been running his uh, thank you tour out of these places. He's going to the Baton Rouges. He's going to the Grand Rapids, Michigans of the world, and Mobile, Alabama, and these types of places, and thanking the voters. And, and this is, this is excellent politics. The question is, when you sit in Washington, if there really is something you can direct and improve on in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Mobile, Alabama, Dubuque, Iowa, and in all these types of places, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I have not seen a tangible way for broad development and income improvement in areas like this uh, that, that just happen on their own from Washington. This is, again, this is unlikely to happen. What's likely to happen is a much more broad brush macroeconomic approach, cutting taxes on businesses and cutting down on the cost of repatriation of earnings that is put outside the country in all these tax shelters and trying to get it to go back into these areas. But um, it, it remains to be seen if that's going to work. So I think, you know, this is the struggle of the Wilbur Rosses of the world and the Steve Mnuchins. They're going to have to figure out how to translate the rhetoric of all this macroeconomic um, stimulus into directed improvement at the groups that want it and need it. And that is not a subject that I would take up as an economist without any more than a lot of trepidation, because I don't see how you do that unless you start to channel it into these groups on a tax credit and tax cut basis, and that could create a lot of tension in the Congress and the Senate if you're starting to cut taxes and do spending only in Pennsylvania and, and, uh, and Iowa and Michigan and so on. Um, so we, we have to see here, again, the rhetoric and the ebullience is blind. It's broad and blind, and therefore... I don't know where we go from broad and blind optimism into targeted success, but that's what we got to do. Okay, we're thinking infrastructure, though, aren't we? I mean, that would be for more of the less of the, uh, say, the, the high school-educated uh, workforce out there in places like Wisconsin and Ohio. Uh, they would be benefactors because they'd be building bridges, is that correct? Or being retrained uh, to do other things for infrastructure pro projects that they would get uh, from Congress uh, okaying a... a I think uh, Trump said he wanted a trillion dollars or something like that. Right, but there's a number, a trillion dollars, which the Senator McConnell has already nixed. And then you say to yourself, okay, let's rebuild the bridges of Wisconsin. And how many types of people want to do that? How many bridges are there to build? What is the real um, long-term benefit of doing this? Because um, if you think that the growth and the productivity gains in the United States economy are coming from high-knowledge sectors like Infotech, the type of infrastructure that has to be built um, in these types of places, um, you know, high-speed broadband, you have to improve the literacy and, and software capabilities of trained workers, and you have to make them better to work with automated factory lines. So the name of infrastructure strikes me as a dated 20-year-old concept. And by the way, in 2008, this very line was used to, you know, to put out a ton of infrastructure stimulus only eight or ten years ago in the midst of that blind. Shovel-ready so jobs. I just, I just don't, again, the, the rhetoric and the, and the reality is 
get a require someone to be you know, brutally honest about the need and the and the direction of, of the flows of infrastructure and the types of infrastructure. And I don't know if anybody's gotten themselves around of just how that's going to happen and what's going to be done. And so I think it's not going to be done that way. And that tells me that we're going to, again, get a broad brush approach, which, again, should create excesses because it will not be needed in a lot of the places it will go. Okay. And also, when you're saying things like tax cuts and, and uh, new spending, it still will benefit Silicon Valley. It still will benefit Wall Street as much as it would anywhere else, correct? Well, yeah, I mean... Here's a quote I saw this morning from, from the, the ch- chief executive officer of General Electric, Jeff Immelt. And Jeff has said this comment, and I will quote it. It was direct in the Financial Times. So what he was talking about is he said, you know, the biggest thing that the market is rallying on, the stock market, and is, is the tax cuts and the potential for the repatriation of earnings from abroad that have been put in shelters outside the United States. Right. So what's going on here is it's a capital investment recession in the United States. And that actually is true. There is a lack of capital investment because it's being either sucked out because the profit tax rate 35%, or it's being sucked out and put into low-tax jurisdictions like Ireland, uh, and the Caymans, and you know, Panama, all these places. So... What he's saying is, you know, the best optimism is this idea that the regime for taxes is going to be simplified and improved on, and this repatriation and accumulation of capital that will be done by the businesses, this, this capital investment recession will come to an end, and this is what's good for stocks, this is what's good for these companies, and this is the idea that everybody's buying. I think, you know, that idea is provocative. And I have heard of bills in the Congress that are going through to try to direct this idea that it, you know, if you repatriate, there's trillions of dollars stacked in tax shelters outside the United States. If you repatriate that into a place where you say you put that to work in factories in Indiana, in Ohio, and in Pennsylvania, um, that actually can work, and that can work for the stockholders, that can work for these, these groups. So that, I think, you know, when you disaggregate, the stimulus, the, the most provocative reason for the stock market going up right now is the tax benefits for corporations that are direct and the repatriation of earnings from their shelters that is also direct, and that has twofold implications. One is you can bring it back into the country, and the other is you can get a, a demand stimulus as a result of this happening in all these areas that need it. Uh, very good. Now, we were talking about uh, the tech world, the infotech world, and that's, you said, the top growth driver of the past 20 years. Um, that's probably not going to necessarily change overnight. But what do you think about what Trump has said about uh, having tariffs on China? How would that potentially affect the overall uh, global tech market, especially in how it um, plays out in Silicon Valley? Well, you know, Mark, the language of trade is... Um, appropriate to to engineer at this point in time. And one of the things that is a language that is useful is this, this idea of tit-for-tat. Tit-for-tat means I'm going to come in the office on Monday with talk to you, and the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to shout at you and call you names and point fingers at you and cut your bonus, and you, Mark Vickery, are just going to sit there, right? Mm. Okay. Right? Am I? Uh, uh, you're not going to sit there, right? No. You're going to go talk to somebody, 
you're going to have me disciplined, you're going to have my bonus cut, you're going to have a big conversation about me, and we're going to play tit for tat, right? I see, right. So, so the problem with Donald Trump is I go into the communist regime in China and say, I'm going to throw a 35% tariff down on your goods. And it's a communist regime. They don't have to report to the people. They don't have to run for election. And they say, good, you know what we'll do? We'll put a 45% tariff on anything you send to us. No Boeing plans. Right? Why do you think Boeing was so adamant in, in the tweeting of the last two weeks? Because they will lose a third of their business without commercial sales to China. Commercial sales they want to do to Iran. And so... Tip for tat is very real. I can come in on Monday and shout at you. I can come in on Monday and tell your boss that I want your bonus cut. I can come in on Monday and make your life miserable. And on Tuesday, you'll play tit for tat. Right. You're right. That's a very good way to look at it. Um, we're talking with John Blank, who is the chief market strategist for Zach's Investment Management here on The Steady Investor. Uh, John, we're going to take a short break in just a minute or so. But I wanted to say to the listeners out there, uh, John Blank comes out with a monthly stock market outlook report, which is really terrific. And if you call in uh, to this number, 800-918-3114, we'll give you a free copy of this stock market outlook written by Chief Strategist John Blank uh, from Zach's Investment Management. Again, that number, 800-918-3114. And by the way, that's the same number to call for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, and you can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago, 800-918-3114. Uh, discuss the, at length your risk levels and investment strategies uh, that are best suited for you and your family. For more information, by the way, you can also email us at info at zimwealth, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com. Uh, or visit our website, zimwealth.com. Uh, okay, so that's good. I think, uh, John, we're going to take a short break. Uh, are there any final words you'd like to say on the uh, transition right now? Because we're going to get to another topic uh, after after our break. Well, the other issue we have to deal with here, Mark, is the rising interest rate environment that's come with the Trump administration's plans. And this has been seen as good for banks, which is true. Um, but it is, has created uh, immense pressure on the dollar. And we're now at a 14-year high in the U.S. dollar. So these decisions he's making um, already have had headwinds and tailwinds. And so we are seeing a, a, a net rise in the market, which tells you that the tailwinds are stronger than the headwinds. But I, I have a feeling that the, the tailwinds are the tax policies for corporations and the headwinds are the strong dollar, and the net is that it's going to be net positive, but that's a guess, and by this blind market, we're going to find out. But if you look at the euro, it's down to 104. It was 130 not too long ago. It was 115 a couple of months ago. And the okay, great. Goes for the end. Well, John, what I think we should do is pick this up after our short commercial break, and we hope the listeners of uh, Steady Investor will stick with us. You're listening uh, to The Steady Investor um, with John Blank, Chief Strategist at Zach's Investment Management. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. 
With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zats.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zats.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, the co-host, and I'm joined today by uh, guest co-host John Blank, chief strategist from Zax Investment Management, uh, who also creates our stock market outlook on a monthly basis. So he just did the most recent one. Uh, was it late last week or early this week? John, I, yeah, I don't remember. Oh, yep. Right. And uh, to get your free copy of this stock market outlook, call 1-800-918-3114. And, uh, and it's comprehensive. It's easy to read. Uh, it's what every investor uh, should be looking at, I do believe. So, uh, John, we were talking about rising interest rates and that creating the pressure on the dollar. And this is going forward. I mean, Trump's not even president yet, and we're seeing 14-year highs on the dollar. We're seeing... Uh, the 10-year push further ahead, almost 100 basis points up from where it was uh, this summer. Um, so where are we right now? Can we, can we start, start with uh, rising interest rates? Yeah, here's the thing. I mean, rising interest rates after this long have um, some good implications. One is, you, from a central banking perspective, you can finally run your interest rate policy with some degree of normalization, and you can get off what's called the lower bound. The zero bound, the end, the endless stream of cheap money, which has some concerns for access in the economy. It also has some concerns for cheating retirement savers and CD owners and all these fixed income shoppers out there from interest payments. So, if you're a retiree or you're a bank or you're a, just a person saving who has no understanding of equity and risk markets, um, this is all entirely good news for you, and it does have the potential for shifting income into those areas of, of, of savers and pensioners. So this is all good news, but and so but it's going to be a regime that we have not seen um, in almost a decade. And this is the concern is what does the change, the trajectory of change from 1.5% interest rates to over 3, 3.5% interest rates portend for creating all kinds of knowledge about the you know, when the water goes out of the tub, we're going to see who who is not wearing a swimsuit, and we're going to find out who was relying on cheap money. And you know, if you think back to 2006-07, the first place that blew up was Iceland, and that reason it blew up was because of the way the Icelandic dollar and all the depositing that was going on into their banking system that was cheap money. So. 
this is the issue, is if this creates uh, a change that catches, because of its severity and its quickness, it catches a lot of people by surprise, and we find out a few people are not in their swimsuits when the water drains out of the pool. And then they're panicking, and then we find out what happens as, as they panic. Right. Um, okay, so that's interesting. Um, so you're also talking about, right before the break, you were talking about the pressure on the dollar that comes from the rising interest rates, and then this will be a headwind uh, going forward, correct? Well, well, we saw this morning, for example, the euro area saw a two-and-a-half-year high in manufacturing purchasing manager indexes. And this is all euro-related because the euro is now from gone 114 to 104 in, in this period of time in the last two months. And this is creating a, a very strong position for a manufacturer making something in Germany or Spain or, or, or Belgium um, and shipping it out of that area of the world. So the net on this is that the United States is trying to build up manufacturing in the heartland. And the very first step is to create a 14-year high in the dollar, which limits that ability to export out of this country even before you do any trade renegotiations. You're already looking at a 15% loss in pricing that's come through the dollar. 10 to 15% change in pricing is dramatic for these areas. And so, again, the rhetoric is we're going to do all this trade um, reconciliation. And the reality is you've made it already harder um, for you to, to, to even do anything because the dollar got so much stronger. So, again, the, the problem we have here is we've got a lot of people um, who are going to think about this in the simplest of terms, and the complexity will be that you net out um, the basis of your change from the positives and the negatives in which you introduce all of the variables. And right now, when you say I'm positive on corporate taxes, positive on repatriation, I might cause a trade war, and I'm certainly going to get higher interest rates and in a stronger dollar, that's what you've done to yourself Along with a higher stock market, that has to net out as a positive. And that net positive, you know, as the Fed has shown itself, is not clear how high that's going to be. Um, even last yesterday, when we saw the FOMC come out with its GDP growth forecast from September to November, they raised GDP growth one-tenth of one percent for 2017. Now, they also created dot plots that are saying three rate hikes are going to happen next year. But six of the 16 groups, six or seven, almost a majority, had anywhere from three to six rate hikes. So the, the deal here is is they are not betting yet on the amount of pressure that's going to be coming out of this net positioning of growth for the U.S. economy. And that can get us you know, all the way to a short rate of 2.5% by the end of next year, which can lead to 5 and 6% of 10 years. Uh, which we haven't seen in years and years and years. And this can cause a great deal of stress for the stock market and the dollar and all these other things. So it, it has yet to be seen how this netting, the netting of the positive and the negatives, are going to come out for this administration. And whether they're going to have the honesty and the economists, frankly, to do that netting for them and explain this is really going to happen. That's, this is where I worry, because people are not paying attention. They're thinking all that he's going to do is just going to work None of it's going to work against what he's going to try to do. And the Fed, by the way, is sitting here, not at three, even though they said they're going to do three next year. That's the low end. 
that's the that's where they think they're going to be. And as they upgrade their GDP forecasts and upgrade their inflation forecasts, they are going to raise the number of hikes they're going to do from here. So I think you know the one thing that's not happened yesterday and is that the Fed is not telling us what they think they're going to happen next year. They're telling us what they think now, and they're going to roll out different forecasts every couple months as they meet. And this is what a data-dependent Fed does. This is how they run the economy. It's not like, as Stan Fisher would say, um, that we meet once for the year and we don't have to have any other meetings. They meet eight times a year for a reason. And the reason is to change these forecasts. And so this is what's going to happen. As the Trump administration exits its talk and enters its action, they're going to have meetings and they're going to adjust these forecasts. And this can take a, a, a totally different tone as time moves on as they see what is in fact done, and then they run their models and they figure out, because the Fed will net this out. They don't have any trouble. They have the models to do it. They will net it out for us. And when they okay. net it out for us, we're going to get dot plots, and we're going to get rate hikes, and we're going to get talks about the dollar, and we're going to get pictures of what's really going on. And that's what's going to happen here for the next eight or ten months, and it will be an interesting dynamic to play out. So do you see a for, uh, foresee a scenario, um, pretty much the the mirror uh, image of what we've seen over the past year of, well, we think they're going to hike, we think they're going to hike, they don't hike, everything's flat, 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 and now they may actually um, bump it up a little bit more uh, more than people think is uh, comfortable for them uh, in shorter amounts of time. So basically be the very opposite of their strategy that, uh, from the past year, year and a half. It's, it's entirely unlikely that they will go below hiking three times next year. It is very likely that they go up as high as six. I mean, there is an asymmetry mark in the dot plots. What I'm saying is we're not going to be sitting there like this year. We're going to do a minimum of three, which means once every four months or so, and more likely four or five, which is once every two months or so. And this is going to be a regularization of raising interest rates and give, as the growth picks up, as the inflation picks up, we haven't seen this in a decade. And this is not going to feel normal to some people in the market, and they're going to pull back. That's interesting. Yeah, and especially with the 10-year going up and up, right now it's 2.61 and, and, and rising. Uh, you may see people starting to look at that and, and maybe rotating out of equities a little bit, wouldn't you say? If it goes up they're to what you were saying. Rotate out of in, dividend players like uh, Utilities and telcos, for sure. They're probably going to start to rotate away from uh, names that are exposed to the dollar, which is you know manufacturing companies that have export-driven driven things. Um, and, but then there's there's positive. We got an OPEC deal, so the, there's going to be a pickup in capital investment for the frackers again. We've got trade policies that may lead to repatriation and business investment in areas that we haven't seen in a while. We have the idea that. You know, no, no, no other than the 4.5% unemployment level will continue to deliver incomes and pressure on wages broadly for years to come. And that can also create more and more uh, ability to create jobs and, and, and create motion for the economy. So this is the thing. I think the thing everybody thinks about right now is we are here and this is what's going to happen. And in a step-like progression across next year, we will slowly reach reality from rhetoric and this is going to be different, almost guaranteed different than any, what anybody's telling you. When I, having done annual outlooks for a career, the one thing you can tell yourself is you never think in discontinuous ways. 
meaning you never think about events or sudden changes. And if you look over the last few years, you know, you had Renminbi collapses that sent markets down, suddenly appearing on the horizon. We had Greek debt crisis that appeared out of nowhere, the Syrian conflict. OPEC introduced a big regime change and then got out of it. And so the next year, like I said earlier in the show, is, is going to be this static ebullience is going to meet some event or a series of events. And those events are going to change the dialogue of what's going to happen next year for this presidency, for the economy, and for you. So that's what I would tell you is that guys like me aren't worth anything because we have to project, and typically what we do, our bias is to decide that the next 12 months are going to be a, basically a little extension of what I've already seen in the last six or ten months. That's not often untrue. And that's, the inflection points are never there. The discontinuities are never incorporated the timing is always poor, and these events are never decided upon because they're, they're considered low risk, 5 or 10% probabilities. But if you get 12 months at 5 or 10% probabilities, one of those 12 months will have one, and yeah. you won't incorporate it. Interesting. We're speaking with John Blank, the chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management here on The Steady Investor. Um, to get your free copy of the stock market outlook that John Blank comes out with every month, call 1-800-918-3114. We'll send you a copy uh, and uh, it, it's a it's a very good read, I promise you. And anybody who's uh, who's a thinking investor uh, needs to take a look. Uh, and speaking of the, the December market strategy, look at that froth. That's what you called the most. That's what you called the the market strategy that you most recently came out with just this week. Um, and in it, I wanted to quote you here, and we could maybe continue after. We're going to go to a break in a few minutes. But right now, uh, the the first thing you said uh, is that the S and P five hundred at twenty two hundred value looks like looks okay, but only on an optimistic forward look. That's, That's interesting. So, so you're pushing this out. Um, how far? How do you come to this, con uh, this conclusion, by the way? Well, you know, the thing, again, nobody is trying to take you through anymore, and we need to do on this show, is the idea of what's called fair value, what you should be paying for stocks, basically. And, right. And this idea, Mark, is done through two things. One is you take the projected earnings of the S&P 500 companies, and you divide it um, by the actual trading price of the S&P 500. So, for example, in 2016, we're doing $118 in projected earnings, and right. the S&P 500 is trading at 2200 or so. That's 5.36%. So you're basically making 5.4%, if you think about it in terms of like a bond, if you own a stock, you're getting paid, whether it's dividends or cash that just flows on the balance sheets, about 5.4%. And the so you, benchmark S&P, right? About that in terms of, of, of a change, in, as you grow earnings, you obviously grow that, that, that earnings yield. But as you grow the stock market value, you shrink the earnings yield. So now, at 2260, 2280, 2300, that earnings yield is falling to 5%, 4.5%. The historic average is 4.2. We've still got another full percentage to go to get back to a number that's normal. And that's the bullish case. The bearish case is that you're shrinking down the difference between what you get out of a stock and what you get out of sitting in a bond or a corporate bond or a REIT or whatever. And this, when you shrink those differences down, you track capital back into the bond market and out of the stock market. That's interesting, yeah, and especially we were talking about the 10 years being getting to a more attractive valuation. So you're saying the fair value calculation for the S&P 500 
at 22, above 2200, uh, has support, but solely on a forward look. Right. Right. So if we take the earnings for the S&P 500 that strategists have for the 2017 number, I right. said $118 was 2016. They're looking at $132 for the S&P 500 in next year. Now, if you think about it in historic terms, and you just say, okay, what if I want to see what the S&P should trade at if that actually happens? 16 on a forward look, 16 times that earnings is a pretty high and pretty rich number. It's kind of about 10% below where we're trading now, so I'm being pretty conservative. But if you take that, you get a number at 2,105 for the S&P now. So the S&P right now is thinking we're going to get A from 118 to 131. We're going to get basically... 13, 10 to 12 percent growth in earnings, which is very rich next year. That's very strong. And we're going to get a very high price earnings ratio for it, like 17 for that earnings. Those are both, in a price earnings ratio perspective and an earnings perspective, very, very aggressive. And this is that what happens is when reality does not meet this forecast, you can get what's called a correction because we should be trading right now at about 2100 on even this stuff. And as you okay. all know, we're trading at 212266. So that's 150 points. That is 7 or 8% greater than it should right now. And so it wouldn't even be surprising to see a 78% correction right now hmm. just to get back to fair value on a very bullish look. That's how bullish this market is. That's the froth I'm talking about. So, you know, I put out a piece a poll in amongst subscribers of tax just yesterday, whether we were going to be above 2250 or below 2250 by the end of the year, and 85 percent of the people were sure we're going to be above 2250. And wow. even three weeks ago, when the market wasn't as strong, and certainly before Trump, that was not the case. Everybody was bearish. So what happens is everybody's piling in, everybody's getting on the bandwagon, and nobody is telling you the truth that if the market corrects on fair value, what you should be paying. We're looking at a 78% correction in the next three weeks. Now, that, that's, that's just, I put that in there. I put that in this piece. I put that in the poll. I, I voted negatively, and almost no one heard me. And that's what's concerning is no one's paying attention to fair value, what you should be paying, and then the idea that you should be probably taking some chips off the table right now, selling your winners, parking some money in cash, and getting out of this market when it's high. And that, that's what I would tell people to do. The fair value is telling you now is the time to sell your winners. Not all of them, but some that you've had for a while. Before capital gains kick in in January, you might want to get rid of some stocks and just book some profits and stay in cash. Very interesting. But also, it's the end of the year, so that you want to maybe book things before the, um, uh, you know, before the calendar year shifts. Uh, so that would be another well, if thing. If you have already taken losers or winners, you know, that's what we're going to see some losers and winners because if you've got a lot of winners, you're going to want to take some losers to lower your tax bill. And if you've got a lot of winners, you might want to take some losers. Um, yeah. And, again, in this type of environment where you can sell stocks pretty richly, um, you have to take a look at that. That's, that's certainly the case right now. When you have fair value, that's 7 or 8% out of whack at least. Very, very interesting. Uh, John, we're going to take another short break in another minute or so. Um, I want to talk about, when we come back, I want to talk about the Russell 2000, and I want to talk about some of the industries that you are uh, saying are, are um, attractive or, or maybe not so attractive. Uh, but, but until then, right now you're listening to The Steady Investor, and for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 800 918 
3114. You can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. And for more information, you can email us at info at ZimWealth or visit our website, ZimWealth.com. Also, call that 800-918-3114 number to get our free stock market outlook. And uh, that is written uh, by our uh, by our guest today, uh, John Blank, Chief Strategist for Zacks Investment Management. We're going to be right back after this short break, so please stick with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Thanks for sticking with us. This is the third segment of The Steady Investor today. Um, we're joined today by John Blank, Chief Strategist at Zax Investment, Investment Management, having a very, very interesting conversation about a strong outlook in the market, and we still might see a 7 to 8% pullback at uh, at an optimistic forward outlook, and and that was from that was from John, and, and John's still with us. So uh, John, that's, I found that a very fascinating uh, quote, and I hope people are paying attention to it. And I think what it does is also adds perspective uh, to just how much further beyond fair value uh, uh, investors have have pushed the the stock market. That's correct, Mark. If you picked that up, and you have, that's my point. And it's always easy to get on the bull train and ride it. Um, the harder part is to put some cash aside and sell some stuff and just say, you know, I'm going to miss out on some gains. You're not going to go off at the highs. You're going to miss them. But you know what? This is the time where smarter people put some cash in the game and take some stock gains. And that's always been the case. And that's I'm not telling you to get bearish and go short or sell everything. I'm just telling you, you know, leave 15 20% in cash, sell something, and put it aside right now because you're going to probably get a correction here in the first half of this year, even if Trump is everything right because <laughs> the fair values are extended beyond where they have to be, and the market's always correct back to fair value at some point in time. 
That's very interesting. So we're going to go back to the December market strategy piece that you came out with this week. And uh, you also mentioned, uh, we were talking about the S&P 500, but you also mentioned that the Russell 2000 may correct, that the risk on rally uh, took the RUT from 1,000 in February to nearly 1,350 in late November. Um, and so and I think you wrote this uh, on the 7th. So what is that? Uh, last week, I suppose. Then. Um, the risk on rallies usually show small cap internet, international stock indexes move together. Um, so could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, well, risk is something that happens when big companies are in the S&P 500. And small companies are in what's called the Russell 2000, which has a ticker symbol, RUT. So people will say, you know, the RUT. So I'm pulling up the RUT right now, and I can see that back before Donald Trump, the RUT was at 1150. 1150. And in six weeks, we, are, we have almost broken 1400. We're at 1370 now. So that is a 20... 2% move, 25% move in a very short time. Now, part of the good news is that this index has gone nowhere for two years. It's sort of catching up with where it should be. That's the good news. The bad news is you look at a chart, and I ask you to pull up, you, you don't often see a move this aggressively, this quickly, and this is concerning because it says to you again that where the next step for the Russell might not be 1,500 until the end of next year. The next step might be back to 1250 and then a rally to 14 or 1500. So I would suggest, again, just on fair value, just on looking at momentum, that, that there's going to be shorters and there's going to be sellers and profit takers. And once the momentum plays out for something like the Russell, you can get back down the hill to 1250 before you see 1500. So, again, not the worst idea. I saw it the other day some of the strategists and Zach's taking and selling their small regional bank ETFs and some of the regional bank ones. A lot of what the Russell's driving up on are these little banks that are a third of this index. So you can get rid of them, cash them out. And that can be put back to work when the pullback happens. It's, it's going to happen. I'm not saying the Russell's going to collapse and you should get out of the way, but I am saying that there's going to be some selling and there is going to be a pullback here, and that that's when you want to have some cash in hand to take advantage of it. Yeah, what you say in the market strategy, if I might quote you, is that you said hold off a bit buying the, the rut, but not international. So uh, what, where's, that, uh, where, where's that discrepancy? You think uh, the small caps that are international are okay? Well, here's the thing. I think what's driving the Russell is the, the regional banks that are in it that are driving off the rates that are having in the United States. Outside the United States, we're seeing a, break, a fracture between this trade, and we're still waiting for... Europe and China and all these markets to get a bid. And that's why I think, you know, now a little rotation, which is not normal to get into the international and out of the Russell, might be, from a relative value perspective, the right trade to be making, the right swap to be thinking about. And, and you can think about, you know, European large cap stocks have gone nowhere also for two and a half years. Is it time for the DAX in Germany to rise? Is it time for, you know, buying, you know, a big German pharma company because these stocks haven't gone anywhere for a while um, or just buying the indexes for these these types of countries uh, all worth thinking about I mean I no one ever gets the timing right you're gonna probably have to sit longer through more stuff but like the Russell now if you were too cynical on the Russell back in January when it plunged to a thousand and nine fifty you missed the idea that was a great buying opportunity, you would have made 40% return on the Russell this year if you'd bought the Russell back in January. That's very, very interesting. Uh, all right, so let's move on to some other things. Now, you did write the stock market outlook uh, a week or so ago. Um, so you basically were predicting 
what the market's reaction to uh, the meeting with uh, with the FOMC and Janet Yellen's uh, remarks yesterday was going to be. You said there would be no uh, Fed taper tantrum like there was in 2013. Uh, and then you also expect that there will not be one going into 2017 uh, should the Fed continue to raise rates. Is that right? Or is it just unlikely, And but you're not looking for that? Well, you know, I'm not looking at it for the United States, but the thing you have to worry about, the United States taper tantrum was about tapering quantitative easing in the United States. It wasn't about right. raising rates. Okay. okay. So right. a taper tantrum is applicable in 2017, but it's not applicable in the United States. It's applicable in Europe. In Japan, particularly Europe, because Europe is tapering quantitative easing. It's gone from 80 billion a month to 60 billion a month starting in April, and that 60 billion can go to 40 billion and 20 billion. And get rid of it. So the taper tantrum can happen in Europe and come to the United States. So the other thing that's very perplexing is the idea that in the midst of rising rates in the United States, we're faced with another year or two quantitative easing out of Europe. And that is the side of me that says you're almost certainly seeing a lot of currency, but you may not see as much 10-year Treasury rate rising past three because of Europe pushing down so hard on their quantitative easing for the next year and a half. So the taper tantrum happened in the United States when the Fed tapered its quantitative easing, which we forgot about. It did cause some volatility in the markets when it was announced. Europe did the opposite. It showed some... Um, ability to rally because they're still at 9.8% unemployment. They're still not anywhere near um, seeing that fall. So the, the feeling is different, but you have to wonder sometimes if the distance between them and us is all taken out of the, the currencies, and this currency effect gets so dramatic. You know, parity on the euro, the yen at 130, you know, parity on the pound of the dollar, and all this blowback in the United States, which comes at the very time of raising rates, these are the things you have to think about. And it might be positive to be in Europe right now as a result of that, because their euro goes to parity, exports, boom, they get out of the growth, they might lower their unemployment rate, and this might be the right time to buy risk in Europe. And that's sort of where you have to go, is maybe international stocks are where to go next year. You're seeing growth in China because the renminbi has fallen apart. You're seeing growth in Europe because QE and the, and the euro are falling apart. And this might be the trade of 2017. It's always tough to call them, but there's going to be a rally in some of these markets, and it's going to go longer and come in sooner, and you're going to be sitting in overvalued stuff in the United States, and you may, might want to be selling some of that stuff and reallocating a little bit to these other markets. All right, so keep an open mind and, and keep your horizons wider, I imagine, right? That'll be kind of a, a good overall uh, recommendation, I would think going forward. Right, that's exactly it. You want to make sure that if the turn starts to happen that you're uh, you're not completely unaware of how to benefit from it. That's the kind of the idea here is that spend a little cash, selling some of your winners and not buying the big story right now and waiting it out a little bit to see if some of these turns happen in these countries and get bought and the big investors right. start moving in on some of these other indexes. I mean, the biggest way to make money in 20. 16 was to buy Brazil a year ago, went up 75%. Uh, you can make a 75% return in some of these markets because they're so beat up if you know where you're looking. And we already see the Russell do 40% for people. And again, back in February, you know, you bought the Russell when everybody was, you know, bearish and sacks. You were the smartest guy on earth. I did advise that myself, by the way. And you would make 40% returns, annual returns this year. And that's the thing is, you've got to think about rotation. You've got to think about getting out of the way 
of where everybody's telling you to go and going somewhere where everybody's not there yet. And that requires some courage as an investor, and it requires some thinking. And that's the difference right now is you're probably going to want to unload red stocks, Russell stocks. You're going to probably want to unload some of your most profitable tech stocks, put in some cash, waiting for that turn, maybe buying a European index, maybe buying uh, pharma and healthcare companies that have been beaten up. Some of these things are coming back. And then there's the other problem, like we've talked about, is just sheer events that I can't tell you are going to happen and happen. But when events happen, there's volatility and stocks fall apart, and you can put some money to work during those events. So the idea that you just have the ability to take advantage of events as opposed to them taking advantage of you is good investing advice for anybody to take. And that is just be ready, have a little cash. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. I can't tell you what's going to happen. But in general, people are wrong about this rosy environment at some point in time even if the rosy environment plays out, there will be worry and concern and events that will give you an opportunity to put that cash back to work. Very interesting. Right, let's talk about some specific sectors and industries and, and try to see whether, where you find them on the uh, attractive to unattractive scope. Uh, we don't have a lot of time for this, but let's start with a couple of the big ones. Energy, you say, is very attractive right now. And that's basically uh, the incoming uh, new administration being favorable to coal and oil and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Well, the thing there is the OPEC production cut. Uh, okay, right, sure. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's not the long-term effects of improving oil and gas production in the United States is marginal in the U.S. and the world market of energy. Energy truly is a world market. Um, one of the ironies of their whole phase is that oil and gas and farming, agricultural commodities, both of which are rural states, Midwestern and Texas-driven states, are also the most global markets. And so regardless of what they do in benefiting oil and gas companies in the United States, the, that of it, the real benefit will come from rising prices that will come from OPEC's production cuts. So the big surprise here is that production prices at OPEC are going to finally happen after years of them not happening, which is a big shift. There was uh, several dozen countries, a dozen or so in OPEC, and it doesn't outside of OPEC, which hadn't been seen before, that, that led to that production cut. So now the question is, do they cheat? And the answer is they surely will. But how much do they cheat? And then, therefore, how long will it take to burn the excesses off of the inventory that was created from the previous idea of killing off the frackers? And the big battle right now in energy, um, even though people are overweight and get in front of the move from a stock perspective, is when and when does that price show up and the inventory overhang fall off? There's one group that says it's going to be in six more months because there's so much inventory piled up, and right. the change in production cuts hasn't gotten deep enough to work that inventory off. If that's the case, then buying energy stocks now because of a move in 12 months is the right idea, but the actual change might be a lot slower than people think, and that's going to cause a difference for the economy in the United States. And that's the biggest issue right now is OPEC, and the overhang of inventories and whether or not this plays out in a favorable way in the timing that everyone thinks. Right. Okay. Well, so even if uh, everybody does play by the rules and agrees to uh, this accord that was signed last month, um, how long do you think it would take to, to work off this supply glut? Is there a, do you have a calculation on that? I, I think it's going to be half a year. I can't imagine this thing getting worked off before June of next year. And that's sort of, I think, you know, the energy markets might be surprised. We might be at $53 a barrel and go back to 45 and then get to 55 by next July, but not till then. And so 
these are the kinds of things you got to think about. There's going to be a, more range trading and more compression uh, in markets like this than anybody's currently imagining. Right. And that can be entirely bullish long-term, but can lead to these pullbacks when the, the timing is not there for you. People get too aggressive too soon. Oil and gas, classic example, production cuts are in place. We all know they're going to happen. They eventually will work off the overhand. They will eventually lead to higher prices. But the timing of that can go on. You know, I say June, you say okay. March. Some John, I'm so sorry to have to cut you off right here, but we're going to have to, to call it a day on The Steady Investor. Please join us next week. John, thank you so much for your opinions and, and for spending time with us. And we hope you all enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 